0: So we talk about imagine a world where we're co-creating and it's 3D and yeah, that's Minecraft. And if you showed them that the tools they're learning, you know, day to day, because they're playing Minecraft, actually have a place in the real world, they'd be much more likely to go, yeah, I could take this and work in construction and design things. So it's like SimCity, but potentially for for the real world.
1: Urban Jungle brings stories from people around the globe that design and build a better world. I am Magda Flores, and this is Urban Jungle. Welcome! This is a conversation with Jamie Johnston, Head of Global Systems at Brighton Wood. Jamie's experience in digital transformation in the world of design and construction has released open source software for collaborative work in the industry and has published a variety of sustainability design and construction papers. On today's episode, Jamie Johnston will be talking to us about disruptive innovation systems in design and construction. Hello, Jamie. I often start by asking places that you like.
0: I do quite a lot of work in Westminster, and there's a walk I can do between our office and Westminster that takes me through Temple, the area of London between sort of Fleet Street and down to the river. A lot of the barristers are and it's this incredible network of little tiny alleys and little sort of squares and it feels like it literally hasn't changed for 150 years or something. It feels like a sort of proper Dickensian bit of London. So I love walking through there because it's always very quiet. You know, behind the, the Fleet Street, it's incredible to get that kind of tranquility in London. And I was there in December and it was dark and in Temple Church, they had the choir singing in Latin and it literally feels like you've walked through a sort of into a time warp. It's incredible. So I love that as a little bit of London that that, that never changes.
1: And I bet you understood every single word of it.
0: Uh, (laughs) Not quite, no, not quite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah in terms of sort of atmospheric bit of london where you know it's dark it's it's cold you can hear the hear the choir you sort of think wow it's a sort of fantastic experience that you don't get anywhere else in london and i bet hardly anyone knows it's there because if you don't have a reason to walk through it you wouldn't think to to get onto those little back streets but i love all those old bits of london the old kind of um alleys and things
1: fantastic i've just taken note of that route <laughs> i shall do that as soon as i can in order to get us into More about what you've been doing. I believe that the start of your journey was as a firm of architects in business information modeling, better known as BIM, and DFMA. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: We started in 1995. BIM wasn't a term that anyone had coined by then. Yeah, we had a particular interest in design for manufacturing assembly or how to move construction towards much more of a sort of manufacturing mindset. A lot of the things we were trying to address, productivity and quality on site and things, are still things we're tackling with. So I think we always had an interest in architectural. Construction is the last sector to advance and adopt a lot of the technologies that everyone else has picked up what would that look like and how would you start to shift the industry it was always the sort of driver for us was trying to find the best ways of adding value for clients and it felt like traditional construction wasn't it and it felt like there was something else so we were kind of set up i think to explore that space and it sort of snowballed from there i guess
1: beam and the fma are they divorced or are they married
0: uh <laughs> Maybe one's the child of the other. Uh, certainly, we think they aspects of the same initiative, I suppose. In my head, there's lots of people say, oh, people have been talking about DFMA for 20, 30 years. It's never really taken off. Why is that? I think part of it is we you needed BIM almost as a kind of baseline capability to be in place. So actually, people talk about the technology bit of BIM. I think the, the real thing it was there to do was that sort of cultural shift to force people or encourage people certainly to collaborate, coordinate, So once you've put all that effort into creating your, you know, well coordinated, beautiful model to then atomize it into thousands of drawings to give to individual people to bash up on site, you go, that feels like a backward step. You couldn't really do DFMA at scale until you had that ability to work together and coordinate and collaborate. So I think BIM was a sort of, in my head, was an enabler of things that would follow. We used to talk to government about it as a sort of, you know, a hook on which you would hang DFMA and low carbon construction and uh, you know digital transformation, a bunch of other things. So I think we couldn't do DFMA, we couldn't really propagate it at scale until we had the hang of BIM. But you go, right, BIM's now the sort of entry level, but now we're doing that, now it opens up the debate about how to do other things. So I think it's not coincidence that we're talking much more about DFMA now and maybe less about BIM because you go yeah BIM was the start of a of a journey that we're now on and you know DFMA is one of the destinations along the way
1: you basically moved from an architecture firm to true integration how did that happen
0: the early things we did were things like at the airports buildings were reasonably complex and we yeah, were doing sort of off-site things so you're trying to build the most compact thing you possibly could we noticed things like above the ceiling voids you'd get this enormous waste of space where you had a structural zone, pipework, ductwork, cable tray, lighting, architectural finishes zone, which was primarily because each layer was designed by a different team who all wanted their own sort of space. That kind of lack of integration sort of allowed people on site to make things up as they went along. It sort of allowed for the fact of the inefficiency on site and the multiple trades. And we just thought, that's really daft that you've got, you know, a, a big chunk of your building volume is completely wasted because you have to heat and treat and you know, look after that space. So it seemed one of, to us one of the most easy places to start getting better efficiency was just to really compress all of those sorts of zones. do that, we recognised that we had to work much more closely with mechanical, electrical, civil, structured engineers and stop treating them like different disciplines. It's the example we sometimes use is in automotive, they don't have the person who does the pipes and the person who does the wires and the person who does the electrics. You know, it's a team that understands all of those things simultaneously. Fairly early on, we thought we started to invite them to work at Brighton Wood. And so we sort of grow this internal capability, which has been incredibly hard work. I would say when we first did it, actually, it was very hard to get that culture. So if you're working with an external firm and you have a meeting at nine o'clock in the morning, you go to the meeting. Whereas if the person's at the desk next to you, would say, look, can we just do it at 10 o'clock or let's tell you what we'll do after lunch, oh, we'll do it tomorrow morning. So actually it's almost harder to get that discipline of integrating when we first started. And it's one of the things we've had to work really, really hard on is to break down those silos and get people thinking in multi-dimensions. And now I think we're very good at it, but it's not easy. And yeah, I can see why the industry, You know, we know why the industry is like it is.
1: But you've done that integration, not just between the beam and DFMA, but you've also managed to take big data as part of that so big data opens up a new world would you give us examples that actually can help us understand the extent of big data with everything else
0: yeah so that that sort of move into uh, yeah use of data or evidence-based design i suppose was the kind of first iteration of it we got to a point probably 2009-10 where we'd start saying to clients look dfma is working really well we know we can deliver you an asset and it'll be quick and it'll be cheap and it'll be better quality all the rest of it Uh, it could still be entirely the wrong building in entirely the wrong bit of the world because the brief was wrong so we started moving further into understanding the brief and eventually that moved into saying to clients actually don't give me a brief tell me what the problem is and we'll do a load of sort of evidence gathering and data analysis and things around different bits of the business that will start to firstly open up the kind of solution space for possible answers to the question and also start to engage more people. So we started engaging more and more different stakeholders and we found that they have their own little language that they speak. So the people who look at it from a commercial point of view, speak a different language to the operational people who speak a different language to the marketing people. But if we could boil it down to some sort of key metrics or some, you know, data was the kind of underpinning unifying language, if we could get everything into that sort of common language, we can then aggregate that and start to play it back to people. For Glaxo Smith for instance, some of the early analysis type projects we did, we proved that the answer was not to build a new building. But was to reorganize an existing asset or change a shift pattern or reorganize some you know pieces of equipment or replace a couple of bits of equipment. That I think was quite interesting to us and fascinating for them as a client that normally if you go to a designer, the answer is going to be whacking great expensive building. The fact that the evidence told us actually what you should do is not build the building but do this thing instead you know, it's a much cheaper option, it's a much better option, and it gave us a much deeper understanding of, of our clients.
1: You've just mentioned having worked in buildings for pharma. What other sectors have you actually been working
0: with? So we're unusual, I think, in that we're very, very cross-sector. So now we work in aviation, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, other process facilities, highways, cross-rail, for Highways England, network rail, residential education, massive range. And I think, again, Because of that sort of evidence-based approach or sort of objective approach, when you look at buildings in terms of their sort of DNA or function, there's not as big a difference between sectors as people sometimes think there is. So some fundamental things which are much more to do with people and how they operate than they are to do with sector. So we always wanted to have that ability to move between sectors. We always had this intuitive thought that learning from one sector you could probably import across so, because people stay quite sector focused, they don't necessarily know what's happening or evolving in adjacent sectors. We always thought, if I can take all that stuff and cross fertilise it, I bet everyone could benefit, and that's been massively true. So, the fact we've moved from doing just buildings into things we're doing for highways, England, for network rail, stuff on Crossrail, turns out quite a lot of that stuff from building buildings is quite applicable to infrastructure as well. And that's been quite a sort of interesting space that we've sort of stepped into. Thinking was there's some fundamental truths about how things should be done that aren't anything to do with sector. But if we can learn it in one sector, we can probably sort of distribute it across other sectors. And that's proved to be quite quite true.
1: That's an incredibly refreshing view because I've had a few conversations with designers from different organizations. And that is a real dichotomy. It is very nice to hear that you have managed to integrate them all and to bring teams as diverse as possible to actually deliver for the client. So that would mean that, for example, I was just thinking about virtual reality. And most of us have played games using VR, of course. How are you currently using VR? Is this something that you actually use within your delivery of projects?
0: One of the things we worked on years ago now was the design of a new prison estate for the Ministry of Justice. We'd worked with MOJ for a long time. They were the first department to go through BIM implementation. So we knew them from the kind of BIM angle. We always said to them, look, BIM is the starting point. We'll get you into more digital things. Then we'll get you into DFMA because we'll take the digital components and swap them out for physical ones. For asked to look at the new prison estates, the brief was how would you design a prison that was more rehabilitative or what are the things that you can do in design terms that will facilitate rehabilitation? There were a load of preconceptions about particular forms of buildings in prisons that were effective. And we thought, I bet that's not true, but I bet no one's ever properly challenged that So we were designing spaces and then we would take the operational people, put them in a potential design for a new house block and say, right, I'm going to move this avatar. Tell me at what point you feel like you've lost the visual connection. Your colleague, tell me what happens. How do you feel if I make the space wider or taller or I put more natural daylight in? So we could model lots and lots and lots of different potential operational spaces understand what it was that worked well from an operational point of view or from a a point of view and so we could test loads and loads of different ideas and rather than having a couple of sketches and saying well good idea or looks like a good idea we could say well the evidence tells us that this sort of separation distance works very well operationally create our own evidence base by testing lots of potential solutions and say well you know having scored them on lots of different criteria this, it turns out, is the best design. And it was a completely different, MOJ uses this term, evidence-based design now. So it's a, a new tool for them, but it was a new way of engaging lots of non-technical people who couldn't necessarily read a set of plans, but you stick them in an environment and they go, oh, that's going to be a problem. I tell you, I wouldn't do that. That's in the wrong place. They can suddenly engage with a potential design in a much richer way than they could do otherwise. We do an awful lot of that now. Potential space is walking people through it, getting that feedback and refining the design through experiential things rather than again subjectivity or our sort of our intuition.
1: It's a very practical use of virtual reality to make sure that the client is getting a very good product, much more than they could have imagined themselves without having worked collaboratively with you in the first place.
0: I do things with pharmaceutical clients. We've done things where we've used the model one version of it to kind of rehearse the construction of the facility. So by the time people get on site, they're much more productive because they've practiced building this thing in a VR space. But we can actually run virtual shifts. So we had a sort of training regime for one of the facilities where the people who'd work in it had to come into the VR, had to gown up in a particular sequence. It was like a terrible computer game before they could go into the next bit and the next bit. So people can work virtual shifts. So firstly, we get incredibly good feedback that operationally it's going to work very well but actually when the facility goes live then there's no learning curve because people walk in and go oh yeah that's just like where I've always worked in this in the in the past but yeah you can sort of get a much better design you can get uh, stakeholders that are much better engaged in the process people that are better trained from an operation construction point of view it's just a phenomenal tool for accelerating engaging bringing people in uh, and you don't need any technical expertise. You don't need to be able to visualize what a two D plan is actually telling you. You can actually put the headset on, walk into the space, and understand it. So yeah, it's it's really helping to democratize, I suppose, the engagement process or the design process,
1: and have fun at the same time. Uh, Jamie, you often refer to the fact that there is a missing link. Would you like to tell us about that a bit more? What sort of software do you use to join that digital missing link?
0: With the sort of early um, diagrams that came out of the big task group it talked about that feedback loop of you know data operational data comes out of assets gets fed into the beginning of the design process and therefore you'd make better design decisions based on you know what we're talking about this sort of data-centric approach. Um, our view is always there wasn't a tool or it wasn't necessarily a kind of proper tool set that did that bit at the start. So a lot of the, I'll call them traditional BIM tools for want of a better term, but a lot of those tools kind of assume that you have a concept design and then you get into the 3D bit and you start modeling. We felt there was a sort of gap between the tools that you might use to do the kind of data analysis and data visualization and how you actually start that as a design process so the the, some of the things we published last year did one for schools design and one for housing design which were open source web-based design tools that took a load of data analysis around how to design a school how to design London departments turned that into a rule set use that to create a tool and it means that you can design things very very quickly now all of the rule sets that are in there around the layouts and the distribution of space and things are based on all that kind of data analysis of London Housing and Schools. And it's the kind of early start to the design process that you can play around with it in these tools and then extract that and then use that to drive your sort of BIM workflow. So we've been developing these things to fill in that gap or start that process. I'm not saying they're the right tools or that we've got the perfect, but it's hopefully there to kind of start a conversation around what are the tools we need moving forwards. And also, if people start to get into this sort of design, manufacturing, assembly space, start to think less of buildings as things that have been crafted by artisans, you know, by hand, and more as configurations of components, you go, well, you'd need a different tool set to do that, wouldn't you? You'd need a configurator or something different at the front end. And that's what we've been trying to uncover or explore over the last, last couple of years.
1: And I hear that teachers and school kids also were involved as part of that project.
0: Yes, so we did. It arose from a piece of work we did for the Department for Education. They already had a sort of very well defined process for putting in some key metrics about the size of the school, and it would spit out a schedule of accommodation. So that's really interesting because you already understand the rules. We took lots of schedules of accommodation and did a load of data visualisation and said, but really what you're asking your designers to do is come up with a selection of hundreds of different spaces, all of slightly different sizes with slightly different functions. What you could do is rationalise that into a smaller group of multifunction spaces. They would tessellate more neatly and so you could away improve the design process at the early stage. Then we found out that one of the challenges was that every time they wanted to do a feasibility study on a new school. You'd appoint a design team, because it was feasibility, they didn't have an awful lot of time to put a scheme together. So they would do a sort of fairly high level scheme and it potentially baked into it some non-compliances So when you went and did the proper scheme, you found that you can't actually fit four proper size classrooms across the width of the site. And so you make them a bit narrower and things. But again, that's a bit helpful. You could take the work we'd previously done, encode that and turn that into pre-configured clusters of spaces, which you know are the spaces you want anyway, and create a kind of digital kit of parts that you could configure on sites. We were developing it. I have a particular interest in sort of next generation. How do we engage the next generation in design and construction? we talk about imagine a world where we're co-creating and it's you know, 3d and, da, 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 and you go, yeah that's minecraft i beta tested the the seismic tool with my then nine-year-old at our kitchen table showed him how to use it and he literally in 15 minutes had designed a school and then his then six-year-old brother had a go i was going yeah we should lean into this we should actually embrace that and show firstly how you could sort of gamify some of these things but also how the next generation who already know how to work in this way could really engage with this and if you showed them that the tools they're learning day-to-day because they play Minecraft actually have a place in the real world they'd be much more likely to go yeah I could take this and work in construction design things uh, yeah you, you might see on the video we actually when then took it into a school in uh, Shacklewell in Hackney got a load of nine-year-olds to play with it it was quite nerve-wracking and yeah it turns out they, they picked it up in no time and you can see their reactions They go, this is fantastic we should have one for housing we should have one for hospitals we should have one you know it's like Sim City but potentially for the for the real world.
1: Children are the most difficult client ever. It is the acid test. If it had managed to be accepted by youngsters, then it is a cool system, really.
0: Yeah, they are. T- I mean, we were, we were nervous about going in because they're quite a tough crowd because they don't, you know, they don't filter their comments <laughs> no. and say, well, I see what you're doing here and it would have been nicer if, you know, they'll tell you pretty pretty quickly. Actually, one of the things, the original plan was to, to train the kids in the morning and then take the film crew in the afternoon in case they said anything negative in the learning phase. But actually, having watched my kids do it, I said, no, no, if the film crew aren't there, the instant they have a go, you won't get that reaction. Because by the afternoon, they'll be going, what oh, do you want, 2FE school? Yeah, no trouble, give me five minutes, and do, 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 do. you wouldn't get that kind of uh, potential excitement because it would just be business as usual. And They're going, yeah, do anything you like now. So, yeah, it's, it was it was fascinating watching that. And the headmaster said, um, very often the teachers, are at the end of the process, they are handed a school that they then have to work out how to operate. Was saying it'd be nice if this happened where you could engage with it and understand why it was designed like that and understand why you'd have to put certain things because of site constraints. And you had a greater understanding of why the school was like it was, but also felt like you'd influenced it and said, well, it'd be better if that was closer and I could move this over here. So again, it's that democratising that process and getting more people engaged with it so it feels like something you can get involved in rather than a thing that happens and is you know, lobbed over the fence to you.
1: The Seismic School Lab and the other one you were talking about earlier, Prism, they are open source, right? So are they available worldwide, uh, UK-wide, London-wide?
0: can access them they deliberately made it web-based so that you don't have to download a piece of software so if you have a lockdown laptop you can still use it we don't store any of the data so it immediately becomes quite secure because we're not you know holding on to it we don't have to do uh, technical support so anyone in the world can use it prism is the rules for it are based on an analysis of thousands of apartments in london secured by the mayor of london partly funded by GLA, and then co-funded by uh, TFL, Greystar, LNG, LNQ. So they're lo- you know, London-based developers. We work with Cast on sort of doing the analysis. It was specifically targeted at the London housing markets. We're actually about to launch Prism 2.0, which has got other typologies, better data layers, a bit more functionality. But again, because we've published the code, someone could take that code and make a Manchester version or an America version or, a, you know, whatever they want to do with it. So the idea was it would start that conversation about hopefully there's a like-minded community of people who could pick up that code and do something with it and go, yeah, I could make it better. Actually, I could extend the functionality and do other things. So we've, we've done the first version, published it and then said, but please someone build on it, make it better. We'd love to join it to other bits of software. Yeah, we're sort of constantly trying to seed and say, you see what we're doing? Someone else pick it up and, and make it better.
1: Talk to us about the IKEA kit.
0: have been talking an awful lot about this idea of platforms, which is IKEA kit. For construction, IKEA, when you go and buy it, doesn't matter if it's a wardrobe or a bed or a chest of drawers or bookshelf, some of the components are the same. So, we've been trying to say what is that kit of components that would allow you to build a school or an apartment building or a hospital or a set of offices. So, we've been working hard on finding what is that commonalities between sectors that would allow you to create that not universal kit of parts and certainly kit of parts that would be very cross sector. Mentioned earlier, if you get into that space and start thinking of buildings as configurations of components. Each of those components can have a set of rules around it in terms of maximum span or maximum story height or number of floor heights, which you can then write as a rule set, turn into a a piece of automation and so the thing that we demonstrated at future build was how you can design something in prism very quickly get a kind of a scheme that you're happy with can then take that and put it into lots of simulation software so once you have that massing you can then run pedestrian simulation sky component overshadowing overheating views etc cetera, etc cetera. the idea being that if that was incredibly quick you would test lots and lots and lots of different schemes So you would use that speed actually to do more design, test more ideas and get a better overall design. And once you've got that, populate the model automatically with all the components. So it's the fact that all those components have the rule sets that allows it to do that. There's a potential nervousness. Certain sets of the design community who think that DFMA will mean identity kit, cookie cutter buildings, it will all look a bit rubbish. No, no, no. The fact that you're using standard components actually allows you to spend more time doing more design. So you can actually have a more site-specific, uh, more context-specific sort of overall design that's made of standard components. So th- for instance, the, the platform system, the column and beam connections are always the same. To the person on site, it's always the same activity. They need you know, a particular set of training and a particular set of tools, but they can do it in seconds. Actually, the length of the beam and the length of the column can be anything you like. So you can get a very, very specific span and a very specific floor-to-floor height. While still getting complete standardisation of component and process, which is exactly what automotive and lots of the other manufacturing sectors do.
1: So, what is next for Jamie Johnston and Brydenwood?
0: Having endless debates at the moment about what. Does the sort of future of working look like? I think lots of people are. Suddenly everyone's realized that there's completely different ways of working that can be, you know, much better tailored to the individuals. So it feels to us if, if after the, you know, the lockdown ends and everyone goes back to work, if you went back into a normal office and worked in a normal way and did a sort of nine to five, you go, we'd have missed an opportunity, wouldn't we? We're trying to think of ways of using this as an opportunity to define, you know, what is the company of the future, how does it work, how do people interact, where are they? how much is in the office not in the office and I think that's going to be quite interesting seeing how that changes how people work and therefore how that changes the assets we build and design and what that looks like in the future.
1: This is Urban Jungle with your host Magda Flores. Thanks for joining and if there is a topic or people you would like to hear from all you have to do is drop me a line. My email address is urbanwsolutions at gmail.com If you would like to know more about Jamie Johnston or Brighton Wood please go to Brightonwood.co.uk Join us in Jungla Urbana in Spanish with Gerardo Bazán, drones, data, at Mexico, or in English with Tom Abbott, who talks to us about sustainability.